0: Hey, I'm so excited to be here this morning sharing in the Word of God. I hope you guys are as well. I absolutely love Sunday mornings. I love opening up my scriptures Uh, as a community to look through scripture and to look through what God might be saying to each of us as we ponder and reflect on and examine His Word. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open them to John chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read the whole way through to verse 21, which might sound like a lot, but I think we can have fun doing it. As you turn there, if you haven't met me before, my name is David Skimbury. I get the joy of being one of the pastors here at New Life Cooling Gata. It is an absolute pleasure, an absolute privilege to be here on team. And if you haven't met me, please come and say hi to me after the service. As uh, Mika amazingly said, um, there is a free coffee waiting for you if if it's your first time. And I'd love to kind of have a coffee beside you, chat, get to know you. So please make sure you go downstairs, check out our coffee and uh, say hi to me. I need friends. Um, That being said... (laughs) How about we pray? How about we pray? How about we seek God? See what he might be saying today. And I'm gonna invite us as a congregation, as a family to not spectate, but to truly just lean in together. We're looking for Jesus and we're hoping and believing for him to be present this morning. That's why we're here. Let's pray together. Lord, I just praise you. You are so beautiful. You are so good to us. You are so rich and abounding in your love and your kindness, pouring out in faithfulness, and you never stop doing that. And even though all of us in this room would so openly admit we don't deserve your friendship, we don't deserve your kindness, we don't deserve your faithfulness, you never relent in showing it. And so we just come before you, and we just praise you for who you are. Thank you for being our friend. Thank you for being our helper. Thank you for being present this morning. And we pray by the power of your Spirit, might we see something special happen? Might we taste and might we see your goodness as we've never done before. We love you, Jesus. And in your mighty name, we all pray. Amen. 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 Verse 1 of John chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi. And Rabbi means teacher. Rabbi, teacher. We know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. I want to point out, we're in chapter 3 of John. It's not like we're in chapter 19. Like in three chapters, Jesus has managed to wow this guy, Nicodemus, with these signs and these miracles. And so he comes to him and Jesus replies, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How? How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. And you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it's from or where it is going. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And everyone, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. It's a long section of text. (laughs) I hope you tracked with me well enough. But hey, we're gonna break that down. We're gonna see what God might be saying through it. In 1937, there was a young man, his name was Theodore, and I'm going to butcher it, but I'm going to own it, Geazel, and that is probably not how it's said, so you might not recognize the name. But there was a young man, his name was Theodore Gierzel, and he was walking down a street. I know, interesting start to a story, no one's ever done that before. He was walking down a street, and he was sad. Like, I mean, his shoulders were slumped, he was frustrated, he felt defeated, he had been rejected 27 times, and these 27 rejections had taken their toll. He had come to into his heart before he stepped onto the street that he was resolved to quitting, to giving up. He thought, man, I'll tell you what, I must have misread my calling. I must have misread what I was made to do. As he walked along this street, Musing and mulling in his own dark and depressed thoughts, he was rudely interrupted by a cheery and unexpected greeting of a childhood friend. You can imagine it, right? You're there in the dark solace of your sadness, feeling depressed and sorry for yourself, and someone comes up to you and goes, "Good day, mate. How you doing?" You know, and you're like, "Oh man, that just feels more like painful than it feels nice." But here he is, interrupted as he's walking down his street, uh, close to tears, and this friend, this childhood friend, you know, didn't get the hint that he didn't want to talk, and yeah, I think some people laugh then because they recognize that, they've, they've experienced that before, hey, so this guy, Theodore, he's getting his ear chewed off by an old childhood friend who's far too chirpy for his own liking, you know, the classic how are you's, what have you been up to's, what have you been doing lately's, you know, all of the classic how's the weather kind of questions, and they're chatting and they're chatting, but this friend manages to pull out of Theodore what was going on, and Mr. Gizel shared his recent woes. And he was an aspiring author, and he wrote something he thought was amazing, but no publisher wanted to publish it. 27 times, 27 publishers all said, no, this is trash, been it? And he said, sure, I will. The friend was taken aback in that moment, taken aback fully. See, this friend, strangely enough, had literally just taken a job as a publisher. And even stranger, He had just taken a job as a publisher in the very genre this man authored for. And he looked him in the eyes and said, buddy, today, I'm glad you encountered me. I'm glad that we met each other today. Because boy, boy, have I got good news for you. I'm going to publish you. And I'm going to do it. And thus, Dr. Zeus was born. And he mused many years later. And I think it's a really beautiful reflection. He used many years later, he said, man, if I had just been walking that day on the other side of the street, I probably would never have become an author for kids' books. Have you ever met or had an encounter with someone that really mattered? Have you ever had a moment when you've encountered someone or something and it's just shifted the course of your life? It's crazy that one moment with the right encounter, it just has the power to shift everything, to change the way you think, to change the way you live, to change what you're doing, how in one moment your entire life can change course. And this is true for a young aspiring children's author by the name of Dr. Zeus, encountering, bumping into an old friend with a brand new job. But it was also true 2,000 years ago for the many Jews who knew about and knew of A Messiah. But so true that encounters could change everything, was it for those for whom the Messiah had become a divine encounter, an intimate confrontation, a life-transforming presence. For those Jews who were doing life and managed to bump into this Messiah, Jesus, they realized just how powerful an encounter can be. Today, we're starting a new seven-week series. The series is called, as you can see behind me, Encountering Jesus. And you may ask, well, what are we gonna talk about in Encountering Jesus? Let me tell you, we're talking about this. It's a deep, deep, deep prayer for our community. And it beautifully backs off of our conference where we became a people crying out for renewal, that we would be a people who are desperate to see God live and move amongst our congregation and our family and our work and our lives. And we're believing that to see anything beautiful and powerful happen through us in the world, first we gotta get obsessed, desperate, recognizing our great need for an encounter, an intimate encounter with Jesus today. And so we're going to be exploring an array of encounters throughout the Gospels. And we're hoping that through these encounters, we might, we might glimpse some of the beautiful realities of what we can expect and the ways we can come to. Jesus, and we may become excited that maybe Jesus is hoping to encounter us today through the power of his living Holy Spirit that is alive, thinking, moving, and loving us today. If that doesn't excite you guys, I'm scared. That excites me, the idea that we can encounter Jesus today. Come on. So my hope today is that as we start this series, we're going to actually follow an encounter of a prominent man. His name is Nicodemus, and he came to Jesus at night. Doesn't sound weird, maybe. We'll find out why it's weird. But my hope is that we might get a real understanding of what this uh, series is inviting us into. And through a little bit of scripture, we might learn a couple of handles for what it truly means to encounter Christ and to do it right. And I want to say this, one of the reasons I'm most excited about the, this series, Encountering Jesus, is because it's not working for Jesus. It's not achieving for Jesus. It's not being holy enough for Jesus. It's not, you know, uh, white-knuckling it for Jesus. It's not being disciplined enough for Jesus. It's simple. It's encountering him. That's the invitation. That's the beckons we're doing. Let's dive in, verse one. Woo, starting at the beginning. Now, verse one, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. You know, throughout the stories of Jesus, we're real lucky if we see anything more than a gender. Do you know what I mean? Like oftentimes we'll see see these uh, moments where a woman came and bumped into Jesus or Jesus intervened in a man's life and did such and such. And we know as readers of the Bible, then what the Bible doesn't say is often just as important as what it does say when we're trying to understand the intent of Scripture. For instance, if it doesn't tell us the person's profession, let me tell you this. You don't need to know his profession or her profession to understand what the Bible's trying to say. If it doesn't tell you their name, then the name isn't important to recognizing what Christ might have been doing in the moment. And yet here we get a story where the author John thought it necessary to write down not just one detail or a couple of details, but to give you this litany of who Nicodemus is that we may understand and recognize the person. And if John took the time to do it, let me tell you what that means for each of us. It means to understand verses 2 all the way to 21. First, we've got to understand verse 1. We've got to know who Nicodemus is if we want to understand what's happening in this scripture. So Nicodemus, this first encounter begins teaching us three things about who Nicodemus was. The first is real simple. Are you ready? It's who he hangs out with. Who he hangs out with, right? I don't know if you guys recognize this, but I'm, I'm a big believer in this. You are the sum of your five closest friends, right? The people you hang out with tell us a lot about who you are. And if you're in this room thinking, well, you know what? I don't like my five closest friends. Or, I don't, you know, I find them really annoying. You're probably annoying yourself. Anyway, um... <laughs> I'm joking, guys. Don't listen to me. I'm terrible. (laughs) It tells us who he hung hung out with. He hung out with Pharisees. And you may think, oh, Pharisees. Yeah, true. But let me tell you about the Pharisees. To be a Pharisee, you actually had to take a life oath. A life oath. That you were committed to spend your whole life understanding all the different laws in both the Torah and the rest of the Old Testament. All of it. And then you were committed to keeping them all. Friends, I don't know how good you are at keeping the Bible rules, but I struggle with the first 10. I don't know about, you know, not the murder one, I'm good with that one. But you know, all the rest, I struggle, man. So, this is a guy who found 600 and I think it's 13 laws in the Bible. And, and he, he said, I'm committed to not failing at any. What tells me about Nicodemus? He is rigidly disciplined. And to understand all those, he had to be pretty academic. But more so, it tells me he was deeply devoted to righteousness. That's who he hangs out with. The second thing it tells us is his gender. He was a man. You may think, why does that matter? I'm not going to labor the point, but here's the reality. In those days, it mattered. He had a certain privilege that 50% of the people in his society didn't have, just because of the gender he was born with. Right? And so he was born into a privilege, an expectation of of a life giving him certain things that 50% of the people didn't have access to. And the third thing was what he did for a living. It tells us he was a member of the Jewish Ruling Council. Now the Jewish Ruling Council might sound like a weird description. Um, of something, you might be like, what is a Jewish ruling council? That's what I said. And so I Googled it, and it said this, easy translation, the great Sanhedrin. Clears it up, right? No. So here's the thing. A Sanhedrin is literally this. It's a collection of people that come together to make a decision. It goes all the way back to the book of, I believe it's Exodus, when God calls Moses to add 70 elders to his his, uh, collection of people so that they collectively could make decisions to guide Israel. And Moses didn't just rule and do whatever he felt mattered. And so what kind of decisions could the great Sanhedrin make? Well, let's say you were on the great Sanhedrin and your buddy down the road in Damascus is really, really annoying you. If you're in the great Sanhedrin, you have the power to say this. On behalf of Israel, we declare war. That's a lot of power. Tell what else the great Sanhedrin can do. It can appoint, it elects the next high priest. In the Israeli culture, in Jewish culture, the high priest was second to the king. Like He was one of the most influential and powerful and important figures in their society. And these were the guys that could elect him. Third thing they could do, they were the ones that anointed the next kings. I think Samuel to David. Fourth thing, they were like the Supreme courts, And when issues couldn't, do the, couldn't be solved in the local kind of matters, the local councils, they would get all the way sent up to the great Sanhedrin, the, great, the ruling Jewish council got it, and then it would be their, their job to try and then punish people they deemed false teachers, false prophets, or any other kind of criminal. What does that tell us about Nicodemus? That was a lengthy introduction for this man. What does it tell us? He was immensely powerful. He would have been deeply respected in his culture. He would have had a lot of influence. Anyone who has the power to wage war has too much influence. Let me modernize this man a little bit. Let me give you a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, oh, I don't get any of this. Who is? Tell me what he looks like in 2022, you know. All right, let me say He's the kind of guy who willingly gets up at 4.30 a.m., right? He's the kind of guy who gets up and then goes to the gym immediately. In fact, knowing this kind of guy, he probably paid and bought his own gym in his house. He gets up at 4.30, he goes to the gym, exercises quite a lot probably, and then he would finish exercising and meditate. You know, one of the guy guys sits down and meditates for like an hour. And after he's done that, he would do some sort of spiritual practice. You know, I don't know what, but Something. He's the kind of person who would have three PhDs at least, right, and probably all of them scholarships because they saw his brain and said, oh, we want you on our list of people who have PhDs here, you know. He's the kind of guy who would be intelligent beyond compare. He's the kind of person who has spent his whole life trying to be a good person, trying to be a decent person, trying to do the right thing. And he would consider himself today in today's day and age spiritual, you know, like the universe. And so that's the kind of guy he is. He'd probably work in a Supreme Court shaping the ethic and the character of nations. And we'd probably describe him with a whole bunch of buzzwords. You know what I mean by buzzwords? Like the buzz, you know, like successful, self-made, ambitious, you know. But the kind of words we'd use, we'd find in, a, in an advertisement for LinkedIn. You know what I mean? Like, like that's the kind of guy this was, poster boy for entrepreneurism. This was a guy the Bible takes the time to tell us one thing about. He was put together. He was successful. He didn't need anything. This is the kind of man we would admire. I wonder today what coordinates you come to Jesus with. Now, there was this jazz flute player called Michelle Hurd. She was a woman. She worked as a baker. I don't know if she can play jazz flute. You should ask her afterwards. I'm sure she'd love to field questions on that. Now, there was... A surfer, a man named Scott, who was a pastor of a beautiful church. Friends, tell me, what, what, what coordinates do you come with? Maybe you're a scholar, a conservative, a progressive. Maybe you're a, a woman or a man. Your name, Lydia, Daniel, Katie, whatever it might be. You were a physio, a support worker, a teacher, a parent. I don't know. What are the coordinates you're coming to Jesus with today? Are you put together? Are you in a mess? Feeling successful? you're barely holding on? You're feeling charismatic, funny, cool? You're feeling lonely, isolated, unlikable, healthy, sick, wealthy, poor. What are the coordinates you're coming to Jesus with today? Now, there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He was as put together as they come, and he came to Jesus at night. Maybe in this room you think, okay, he finished work, and then he went to Jesus. This sounds perfectly acceptable. It would do, and I agree, except for this was the time before they had perpetual ticking. You want know to I mean, perpetual ticking? Like, you know, the second hand on the watch. They couldn't measure time quite as accurately as we can today. And so they actually used the sun to tell the time. So when it says nighttime, it's not like, you know, after 6 p.m., you know, he finished work and then decided, okay, I finally, you know, actually, this kind of guy, 9 p.m., he finally finished work, and he's going to go and see Jesus. No, this is someone who more accurately what it's saying is this. Nicodemus wanted to visit Christ. But first, he felt the need to wait Until the sun had gone down, so that when he went to Jesus, he could go to Jesus surrounded by darkness, surrounded by the nighttime. You know, I don't know if you think about this too much, but only one thing could really make a person with that kind of repertoire creep up on Christ in the dark, you know? Like like desperation. Let me tell you why. If he felt the need to creep, the only reason he would go is if he felt desperate. If he felt the need to creep, the only reason he would choose to go is if he was desperate. The man comes to Jesus, and he's outwardly celebrated, yet he's coming in the darkness, and he says, Jesus, I know you, like me, are a teacher, but I also know there's something different about you. I've seen it with my eye. I've heard the reports. You do miracles. You're sent by God. There's something about you I'm desperate for, so I'm here. Teach me, almighty teacher. You know, I need to know what I'm missing. This is Nicodemus' cry of desperation, a put-together man. And listen to how Jesus replies. He says this very truly, which literally translates to amen, amen. It's a legal phrase for a man who works in the law. And amen, amen means so be it, or it is done. In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. This is the truth you're desperately in need of believing. Amen, amen, I tell you, no one. Everyone say no one. Everyone say no one. I tell you, no one, no one, can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Timothy Keller puts this beautifully, I actually love it. Uh, He says this, this is an astonishing thing to say to a man like Nicodemus. Jesus is saying that the pimps and the prostitutes outside on the street are literally in the same position spiritually as he is. Wow. There is Nicodemus flush with his moral and spiritual accomplishments And there is someone out on the street who is homeless and addicted. And as far as God is concerned, they are equally lost. They both have to start from scratch. They both have to be born again. Wow. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one, no one, nobody can enter the kingdom of God. No, not you, Nicodemus, not flush and plump with your achievements and your accomplishments. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born in the spirit. And check out Nicodemus' reply. How can this be? How can this be? Now, I don't know where you're finding yourself today on that scale, and I'll call it the Nicodemus scale for today. You know, maybe you're feeling deeply put together, incredibly put together, or maybe you're falling apart at the seams. Here's what I invite you to see this as. This isn't so much a guide for the put together people. That's not what this is. What it's calling us to see is that Nicodemus, just like anyone else who's successful, no matter how successful, consider the most successful person you've ever heard of in your life. Maybe you're thinking of, I actually couldn't think of anyone right now. I was gonna say Elon Musk, but I'm on the fence with him. But anyway, whoever you're thinking of as the most successful person who's ever existed or lived, consider him for a minute or her for a minute, right? Have that person in your mind. Jesus is saying, the Bible is teaching us this, not that it's a guide for how that person can approach Jesus, but that even that person... Even that person, in all of their applause, and all of their promotion and all their success and all their achievement and all their LinkedIn buzzwords and all their connections on Facebook and all the times they've been celebrated by Time magazine. In every way they make people laugh when they tell jokes, and in every way they walk into a room and people knows they're there and listens to them, that person still clothed in all of that success is desperate, desperately in need of Jesus. This ain't a guide for success for people to find Jesus. This is a promise that no matter how successful we as a church and as a people find ourselves becoming, we will never become less desperate for an encounter with Christ. That is a promise. And I see three quick things in this text that then tell me how I encounter the gospel, how I may, if I am so desperate to encounter Jesus, if the encounters with Jesus is so deep and rich in need to my life and to my heart, then how do I do it? And I see three quick things that teach me exactly what it means to encounter Christ. The first one is that we come where we are. No amount of put-togetherness will ever be enough, so just come. The second one is we come when we are. It's okay to come in the night. And the third one is we trust Jesus with the rest. This ain't Hollywood. So we'll start with the first, come where you are. No amount of put-togetherness will ever be enough, just come. What Jesus offers one of the most put-together and culturally successful people who comes to him is a beckons, a beckons to be born again. It's a strange phrase and a strange word, and I think Timothy Keller sums it up, that it is a putting aside of your old self, a putting aside of everything you've ever achieved, a putting aside of everything you think makes you worthy of Christ and salvation, and accepting that you are like a blank canvas and that's where Christ accepts you, right? And so Nicodemus is shocked by this reply. And like I said, he made an oath, an oath to be righteous, an oath to commit, an oath to his, an oath to his devotion and discipline. And so he's shocked by this reply. And so, you know, remember when I said uh, he is, you know, intelligent, influential, um, you know, respected in his society. When I read his reply, I ain't so much thinking intelligent. I'm thinking Cletus from the Simpsons, you know, like I simply can, like that guy, right? And, and so he's like this, how can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Like I read it that way. But that's not how the Bible sets him up. And when we read it that way, it means we haven't understood Nicodemus. Nicodemus isn't reading this literally asking, "Do you want me to be literally born again?" I think it sounds more like this, "How can someone be born again when they are old? Come on, Jesus, that's not helpful. I'm old." And I risked everything I have to be here to ask help from you. And I, ain't, I know you ain't saying, climb back in and be born again. So just say it plain, Jesus. It's kind of like this emotion, uh, impatient and kind of mocking response that mingles, I believe, Nicodemus' pride with his desperation. And here's the reality it's actually not that unrelatable to me. Maybe you are a bunch of holy and perfect people in this room. But I gotta say, if I go to someone and I'm asking for help and I'm like vulnerable with them, and they give me some fluffy Lorna Jane Facebook advice, I'm gonna get a little bit irritable, you know. If I'm like, man, you know, I'm feeling so down at the moment, I'm just feeling heavy, I'm feeling sad, I don't know what to do. And they're like, just think more positive thoughts. You know, I wanna headbutt them. I'm like, that is not helpful, man. And I will get impatient. And I can imagine Nicodemus in this moment. He's like, I risked my reputation and my career. I snuck in the night to come to you. And you're saying, be born again, like you think I'm gonna think that's helpful. Like what on earth? And I think it's only when we see Nicodemus' next and final line in the story that we can begin to see how brilliantly Jesus is actually moving here. You see, Nicodemus' next line is this. How? How can this be? I want to point out something about this. That's four words. That's four words. How can this be? Four words. What a, what a far stretch from his first line when he came in. Jesus has stripped Nicodemus back from his pride, from his success, from his intelligence, his overcomplication, his desire to achieve but not to encounter. And to all that's left is desperation. He comes in with this royal we. We have heard that you, that you are a teacher who's performing science. Who do you think the we is? He's coming in the name of the rabbis. He's coming in the name of the Pharisees. He's coming in the name of the great council. He's clothing himself in his outward success and saying, Jesus, accept me. And Jesus is like, I'm stripping you back. I'm stripping you back. I ain't accepting you because you're successful. I'm stripping that back. And then Nicodemus comes again for a second round. And Jesus is like, in mocking and intelligence and impatience, and Jesus is like, Nah, I'm going to strip you back again. Your intelligence and your brain, it's not the reason I'm going to accept you right now. I'm stripping it back. And he comes with four desperate words. I just need to know, man, how can this be? Teach me more. Explain how it works. Nicodemus came expecting complication, expecting religion, expecting a a, a teaching on discipline or, or, or devotion or achievement. And what he got was a stark call in a complicated era. And he was stumped by its simplicity. By a beckoning to do nothing more than lay down all that had come before and to start something new with Jesus. And I I want to invite us as a church this morning to truly recognize that that wasn't just a call for Nicodemus. You are the same God. You are the same God. We sung it before. We believe it in this room, right? We believe he is the same God, yeah? Yeah? Come on, we believe he's still saying the same things. His truths haven't changed. And just like he said to Nicodemus, full with his religious achievement and plump pride in all of his success, he's saying, to us today, friends, strip back. I'm gonna tell you what I'm inviting you to do. I'm inviting you to come where you are. Come as you are. Stop complicating my gospel. I never wanted it to be complicated. Here's what I'm inviting you to do. Come in Jesus to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Come in and by the power of Jesus towards our relationship with our Father by the power and the blessing of the living Holy Spirit that is doing something special in our midst. That's the gospel. Are you in or not? And, and, and Nicodemus, who was shocked, he gets stripped all the way back so it's simply this, be born again, a new creation, the old gone. Be dead to yourself and be beckoned to life. And Jesus, and in this room, we might feel put together in the world. We may feel put together by the world. But what Jesus is inviting us to be is to be put together by him. Second one, come when you are. Friends, it's okay to come in the night. You hear me, it's okay to come in the night. I remember when I first got saved, I couldn't get baptized until I shook my sinful habits, and I was so rigid on it, and I just refused to be baptized until I was finally a good enough Christian. And after a short while, I realized I had a long way to go, and I realized that there was never gonna be a moment where I could come when I'm good enough. And a really wise, wise mentor said, how about you just come when you are? Come as you come now, don't put it off. And I did get baptized. You know, there's a reason Nicodemus came in the night. Maybe he was afraid of people seeing. Maybe it was a sudden need. Maybe he'd spent all day debating with himself whether he would go. And this was the first moment he had truly felt the courage to say, stuff it, I'm going. But here's what I want to point out. He comes in the night, but Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Friends, Jesus never said, how dare you come at the night? In the midst of the night, a stranger at the door Jesus welcomes him in. And Jesus gives this creeping, strange guy one on one time where he breaks down the realities of hope and salvation and desperation. And I get the feeling, not that Jesus was interrupted, but that Jesus was waiting for him. Friends, do you believe that Jesus is waiting for you today? Because he is. And it reminds us we don't have to get it. We don't have to have it all together. We don't have to be perfect to be welcomed by Jesus. Let me tell you, it's okay to come in the night. It's okay to come when you're struggling. It's okay to come when it feels silent and like God's not speaking. It's okay to come when you're confused and theology ain't making sense anymore. It's okay to come when you're tempted and feeling sinful. It's okay to come in the midst of your shame and in the midst of your guilt. When you've failed and you failed again. It's okay to come when you're hurting and the world has let you down and it's bleeding you dry. It's okay to come in your anger. It's okay to come when you're dry. It's okay to come in the waiting. It's okay to come when you're doubting. It's okay to come when you're empty. It's okay to come when you're feeling dirty. My friends, there is no time that you will ever be more accepted in the presence, in the embrace of Jesus than simply the time that you come. Your qualification to be accepted by Jesus it's not your disposition in coming. It's just the act of coming. And so friends, we come as we are, we come when we are, and we trust Jesus with the rest. It's not Hollywood. Stop trying to make it. There's an incredible book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. If you struggle in this room with uh, all of the disappointments, with the flashiness of church, give that book a read. It's powerful. But here's what I'm going to say Nicodemus begins with Christ surrounded by his success, Christ strips him back. He begins again with pride and impatience, Christ strips him back. And when he begins a third time, a final time, stripped back to his raw desperation, the desperation that filled every other line of his dialogue, right? That's when Jesus comes to him where he is. That's when Jesus reveals to him one of the richest expositions of the simple gospel that I think we have in the Bible. Remember that John 3:16 verse? Maybe you've heard of it before. I don't know. You know the one that's painted on like billboards for unbelievers, the one that's painted all throughout schools for children. Can you believe that that verse was originally for a scholar and a powerful man, not unbelievers and children. A man who was a scholar and powerful, but stripped back to his honest hunger and his raw desperation. And how did he take it? How did he respond? What followed it? We don't know. Nicodemus doesn't get another line. There ain't no Hollywood moment right there and then. At least for uh, four chapters. And then we see him again. It's daytime this time. That's a win. What a change. Come on. And in view of his peers, he's talking. And he's talking directly to his peers. He ain't hiding anymore. And he challenges them as they're accusing Christ to give Jesus a fair go. But still no transformation is recorded. But i say tell you this. I see a Nicodemus. I see a Nicodemus that is less defined by his put togetherness. That is less defined by his achievement and by other people's opinions of him. takes another 12 chapters before we see him another time. Three years-ish have passed. And we see him for the third and final time. And here we meet a guy, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling, ruling council, making himself unclean by handling a dead body that his own council had just ruled as a false prophet and hung up upon a cross to die. And Nicodemus brings the myrrh and the aloes. Nicodemus comes ready for this. Nicodemus comes expecting this, to honor the body of Jesus because he has put aside what once ruled him. He is no longer bound by his uh, great pompousness, his great achievements, his outward success. No, it's put to the side. And in this moment, we see it clearly. And he's no longer in the presence in this moment, dealing with a dead body filled with his ego and his impatience and his irritation. He puts that aside. And he says, I'll bring the myrrh and the aloes. And with another person, he prepares and honors the body of Jesus, a person, his own counsel, like I said, his own people are just condemned as a false prophet and a heretic. That's who he arose with now. And I imagine... In this moment, as he's preparing this dead body, honouring Jesus' body, his mind is taken back to his first encounter with Jesus, first conversation with him. After Jesus had stripped him back, after Jesus had taken him back to just desperation and nothing more, I imagined his mom was brought back. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. And I imagine that Gadim is there knowing the story, knowing the story, knowing the story. He sees this moment where Jesus had been lifted up, referring to a story where uh, Israel had sinned again. No surprise, Israel had sinned again and they were being judged. And God said to end this judgment, I invite you, Moses, to make an image of the sin that is not the sin, to take an image of the serpent, the judgment that is not the serpent and raise it up and every time someone looks at that serpent they shall be saved and people are healed from being bitten by snakes and 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 Nicodemus is here preparing this body I imagine looking back to this story and thinking oh if I just look to this lifted up body an image of our sin an image of our brokenness but not our brokenness but not our sinfulness if I just come to him if I put aside my sinful ways, my full of my self-assuredness, if I put aside all my woundedness and my weakness and I just look upon him, not more righteous, but more beautifully in love and obsessed and trusting in his name, that everyone who believes in this name, in this man, may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world, for God so loved Nicodemus, That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I just imagine Nicodemus in this moment, as he prepares this body, thinking back to this. A son of God who had given his life, that all who believe in him may have life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him when we get to know how rich and how deep the love Jesus has for us is, it changes everything. Those things we cling to so tightly now begin to slip. Those things we're obsessed with today no longer obsessed, no longer possess us. Those spaces where we can't imagine depending on them as crutches no longer have the power to support us, but we depend instead on the name of Jesus. This isn't a message just for the unsaved. My friend, if you're in this room and you believe in the name of Jesus, then what this is is a beckons to believe, to believe that an encounter with Jesus today might change everything. Would you dare? Would you bold? Would you take the courage to believe such a thing might be true? That today God might be inviting us to encounter him, not when you're better, not when you're more holy, not when you've got it all together. But in this moment today, he might be inviting you to see that he loves you and he wants nothing more than you in his presence and in his company, trusting him. Put aside your pride and your fear of the person sitting next to you. Put aside your guilt and put aside your shame. Jesus is enough. And so we're going to pray together. And afterwards, I'm going to invite us to do nothing more than seek an honest encounter with Jesus. The band is going to lead us in worship, but this ain't some sort of uh, lyrical religion. I'm not asking you to stand up and drone some words on a screen. I'm asking you to pursue the name of Christ. And if you happen to sing, then sing. because I truly, I deeply believe my friends that we need to know that Jesus is present today, that Jesus wants to move in our lives. And there is nothing you've ever done that has made him want to love you and move in your life any less. The cross took care of that. The resurrection assured it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are a present and beautiful name in this room. We thank you Jesus And in spite of all of our failures and in spite of all of our dirt and in spite of all of our shame, you still want to encounter us. You still want our presence. You still want us in in your hand and in relationship with you. I thank you that you forgive us our apathy and our distraction, and you forgive us our boredom and our pride. And I thank you, God, that you forgive us for all of the ways that we minimize the reality that eternity is nothing more than a forever in the presence of a God who cares. And somehow when we're there, that will be enough forever. And you're inviting us to taste some of eternity today. I pray in this room for each of us who believe on the name of Jesus, that we might get passionate, hungry, desperate, that we might learn to come as we are, and we might learn to put aside the desperation to be better, but just come when we are, and that we would stop expecting you to perform or act like a circus clown, but we would trust you with the rest. And I pray in this room for those who don't believe in you, Jesus, those who are wrestling and struggling, My Lord, I pray that you would be tugging by the power of your spirit on the hearts of everyone, that those who have never known your name is the name that actually cares, loves, and saves. I pray by your spirit, the blindness would cease, that eyes to see, spiritual eyes to see, would be their reality. I pray that we may sing of your worthy, worthy name, knowing that you have covered us for our debt and our failure and our shame entirely. And so we can do nothing, nothing, nothing but worship and sing and praise and declare and find in our hearts the real, real I-turning-back-to-you kind of moment. We love you, Jesus. By the power of your name we pray. Amen.